0: In Kobukai Jiu-Jitsu, there are no competitions, and there are no trophies, but there is a reason we all train. This episode attempts to address the end game, that we are all in it to learn what to do if, scenario-based training, which very few other martial arts and schools teach, which make us altogether unique and one of the most effective styles out there. From the
1: dojo to the octagon, we bring you the Jiu-Jitsu Master Podcast!
0: Welcome to another edition of the Jiu-Jitsu Master Podcast. This is your co-host, Sri Pendikatla, and with me is co-host Shihan Russ St. Hilaire, 7th Degree Black Belt in Kobukai Jiu-Jitsu. How are you doing today, Shihan?
1: I'm doing great. How are you?
0: Awesome. Very interested in talking to you about some topics for today's discussion, which include real-life scenarios and potentially how to how to train for them.
1: Ah, uh, Some of my favorite stuff to talk about and do.
0: Hopefully we can uh, find out how to how to deal with uh, certain situations that seem to be occurring more often these days in the real world, perhaps how to how to even prepare or, or train in, in the dojo or outside the dojo for them.
1: Yeah, there's a lot of um, scenario based training that you can do. Um, I guess first I would say you have to have your fundamentals, right? you got to have your building blocks of jujitsu through just training in the dojo, So getting in there with your gi on or or no gi on the mats with a, you know, licensed instructor that really knows what they're doing and and just working through the fundamentals because you can't just be put into, you know, a real life scenario without having good, at least good basics. Because a real life scenario is really there to sort of train you under stress, uh, which really helps you know, burn the techniques into your mind and and allows you to be outside of a controlled atmosphere like the dojo. But, you know, without your fundamentals, you know, you can't get there. So let's just go with the assumption that, you know, a lot of the stuff that we're going to be talking about today isn't necessarily for the guy who just walks in the dojo or has been there for 30 days or whatever. Right. You know, you've got to you know, you've got to have some training under your belt. You got to know how to do throws and you know how to how to do um, you know bone breaking techniques and aiki and and some na'was and stuff before any of this stuff really is gonna fall into place. But you know, let's say you've been there, you know, a year. So now you got some real good basics, and uh, and you know you can now take them out of the safety of the dojo situation into some real time environments and and then work on them. You know, I don't want to give anybody the false hope that they train for a couple of weeks in jujitsu. And then, you know, uh, Hey, she on told me how to handle a stick up at an ATM and then they get shot and they're like, what the hell? Right. It takes a little bit more than, than that. You know, you have to really have good basics to move on to this, but once you do, I think it's a great opportunity to get into a natural environment and practice your techniques. Could
0: you start maybe talking about what you've been doing down there in Florida?
1: Sure, and you know, and I'll also say I'm not just doing it with the students that we have down here in Florida. I mean, I've done it all along. Some of it is very focused on, hey, I'm gonna put you in a car and we're gonna work on carjacking type of things, which you know, maybe you haven't worked on, but there's been all sorts of natural environment training that I've done over time. I mean, I'm sure you can remember some some runs through a rail yard at our dojo in East Hartford where, you know, not only were we Running in an uneven environment through the woods, over railroad tracks. Every once in a while, you know, random strange people would come out of a train or out of, you know, out of some behind a building, and you know would certainly wake you up to you know what a potential situation is, causing you to have to think about your self-defense training outside of the dojo is a very very important thing because that's where you're going to actually have to do it if, you know, you ever have to do it. Hopefully you don't, but if you do, it's going to be in a natural environment that you spend time in already. You know, it depends on what your life is like. If you're like you or I, uh, you know, in general, you know, we're we're at home, we live in a relatively safe neighborhood, you know, we get up, we drive to work, we go into an office, maybe we go out to lunch, on the way home we stop, maybe we get something at the supermarket or stop by C V S and and then we head home maybe we head out to the gym or we head out to the dojo or, you know, whatever, whatever it is you're doing, you know, maybe you go out with your wife to dinner or, or a movie on the weekend, but that's sort of the environment that you and I live in. But there are other students who are police officers who have to deal with those sort of environments that they might deal with on a daily basis. You know, we have some people that might work in a factory environment. We have some people that might work, you know, as a bartender or a bouncer, um, Uh, There's people that travel quite frequently to foreign countries that uh, some are safe and some aren't safe. So, you know, you have to sort of assess the situation that you're in. Where, where do I go? What do I do? What do I need to be prepared for? Um, and that will give you, you know, sort of a, a viewpoint as to how you should be training. And I think there's some things that cross everybody, right? You could be carjacked. Anybody could be, you could be, uh, held up at an ATM machine that happens quite a bit. Um, you know, workplace shooter and shooters in public places and movie theaters is unfortunately happening happening more and more often. Uh, you certainly could be in a hostage situation, you know, uh, in mass transit, a bus or a train. Probably not so much on an airplane anymore. Um, I mean, I guess it could happen in a in a foreign country, but you know, probably less likely today. You know, you certainly could just be mugged. I mean, there could just some you know be somebody that's in such sad shape that they need to steal your watch or take your laptop or whatever, your watch, so they can go pawn it for money. And that, you know, that could certainly happen anywhere. So those are the type of things that I'm concerned with that that people need to be prepared for. Do you ever feel like, you know, you're in a everyday life, you know, regular situation and all of a sudden you see something that kind of puts you on edge, like, wow, this, this really could escalate really quickly here.
0: Absolutely. Mention a couple of incidents.
1: Maybe we could talk about
0: those first. Sure, that would be great.
1: So this summer, uh,
0: where I work, uh, it's in the middle of a small city, and I was uh, told uh, during the day that just that morning somebody had gotten robbed at uh, knife point uh, in pretty much in front of the building. Wow! And uh, yeah, it was it's a little unnerving to, to hear that happen right in the in the morning during a normal busy day. So sure, it exactly, it could happen in the in, in a relatively mundane. Uh, routine setting. How would I deal with something like that if if I were the unfortunate victim?
1: Yeah. So I mean, that's a great scenario. Every day people go back and forth, probably from that parking lot and shuttle to the office, and nothing ever happens. And then one day there's there's some you know deranged person or some desperate person that you know suddenly is going to rob somebody at knife point. And um, I would guarantee that. 99% of the time, not a single person would have any idea what to do. There could be that one person who has trained that's there and, and does know what to do. And so, you know, here, here's how I would approach that. Um, you know, if someone else is getting mugged, which is just as likely as you, right, you could be the trained person standing there in a crowd and it's literally somebody else getting mugged. I mean, you quickly have to assess the level of safety for the person getting mugged if you were to intervene. And it's going to be a very quick decision. By the time you see it, are they already ripping off their watch and throwing it on the ground? The guy's going to grab it and run away. Well, then that's that's how it is, right? You know, has this person now been slammed up against a wall and somebody's holding a knife against their throat? Well, that's a whole different situation. And, you know, you'd have to make a moral decision at that, at that instant or whether or not you're going to try to save this person or or you think it's going to de-escalate once the person gets robbed. So in real life, it's not as cool as in the dojo. It's, it's, uh, it's a messy situation, and you know you can make a bad decision. If the person's attacking you, you've, you've also got to make those decisions because you, no matter what you know, no matter how good you are, I will never tell a student that they have better than a 50-50 chance because the, you simply don't. You don't know what's going to happen. Are you better off knowing what you know? Absolutely. Do you have any idea what the outcome is going to be? You don't. You can't see the future. And so you have to make a decision at that point. Is it worth it for me to fight this guy, take him down, and so he doesn't hurt anybody else and he's certainly not going to hurt me? Or is it worth it for me to just toss my wallet over there and let him go grab it and I'll deal with the credit card companies and stuff later and give a police report and I can go home to my family safe and without a hole poked in my abdomen? So again, you have to make those decisions, but those decisions can't be fear-based, right? They have to be like logical decisions and they have to be really, really quick. You know, I think as jujitsuka, as martial artists, we tend to lean towards the, we're going to, we're going to take this guy out kind of thing. I can't tell you whether that's the right thing to do at that moment, but I know our tendency is to do that uh, where we're like, okay, how am I going to Cody this guy or, or whatever, all the things we've worked on in class. So I would say you have to go through what I call the threat level escalation, and this applies to all self-defense. Is you start out with the awareness aspect: is there a problem? Does this guy look sketchy? What's he doing here? How can I move out of the way? Does something just doesn't feel right? And if that doesn't go well, suddenly the guy is right up on you, and and he's going to put his hand on you. He's going to threaten you. You know, the next escalation is just simply how do I escape from this, right? How do I swat the guy's hand out of the way or kick him in the nuts or do whatever I need to do. And I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, jog away, or I'm going to go jump on the, you know, the shuttle or whatever. If that doesn't go well, like they got you, they got you pressed up against the bus stop and they got a knife against your throat. Right. Well, then you got to move on to the next next escalation. And most of the time that's going to be, you know, secure the weapon, right. Out of get yourself out of the line of fire or out of the line of stabbing and hit the guy. Right. Just plow them in the face, hit them or kick them in the nuts. It's a real, real motivator to stop attacking you and then still escape. I mean, you don't have to get into the grappling, the throwing, the on the ground kind of stuff, right? That's what happens when all of those other things don't work well. It's, it's really about sort of the shock and awe, right? You just, you, you deflect, you strike, you move away and you get away as fast as you can. And then of course if if that's if there's no escape possible then you do have to take him down. And I know a trained person who's even been training Kobukai Jiu-Jitsu for years probably got like, you know, three or four ways to take the guy down pretty pretty easily and and that person has no falling training, so you know, they're going to they're going to get slammed. But I, I really want to emphasize that I went through an escalation. I would prefer to do the least possible to make myself and others safe uh and not the coolest jiu-jitsu move. So you know, I think that's how you're going to have to deal with that and, and every other kind of, of attack situation that happens. You know, the only time that you don't get a choice is when something doesn't escalate. It's when something goes from, you know, zero to 90 miles an hour in one second. And, and then you just have to react and you'll react how you're trained.
0: And, of course, if uh, the person has a weapon, we should be taking that away from them.
1: Uh, if you can. Yep. Um, definitely if you can you know I, I'm gonna envision somebody pushing me up against a bus stop with a a knife pointed at my throat or or whatever as you you know were describing I'm not sure where they were threatening them with the knife, but I'm sure it was pointed towards their torso in some way. if the person is right up against you you know or close enough to stab you then you know you're gonna have to make that decision how am I going to take that that weapon away and you know my first first reaction is always going to be to push that weapon down towards their groin, you know, press it right against their body as fast as I possibly can, and then just smash them in the face with a fist as hard as I possibly can. You know, just those two quick movements. Everything after that is kind of choices, right? I I mean, I can turn that hand that I pressed into his groin area into a Cody Gash real quick and toss him down to the ground. Most of the time, by the time you've thrown them, the, the, the knife's gone flying. Kind of the mechanical twist of that wrist that the first thing is push that thing away from me as fast as possible and just plow them in the face. You know, if they have the knife on me, if the knife is actually the point is in my throat as an example, or the blade is against my throat, I have to do one of uh, a couple things, right? The first thing I have to do is make sure it's off of my throat because that's, that's the problem. So, you know, if it's a, if it's a pointed at my throat, you know, I'm going to very quickly move my head back as, Quickly as possible to give me an extra inch of space there. And then I'm just going to give it a quick nagashi a quick, like just a little tap. So I'm out of the line of the blade. And then I can move into anything, right? One of my favorite moves at that point is to do a katagatami and and a katagatami type throw, right? Just push their arm past your head, get them into the katagatami. So that's that shoulder and head choke that uh, that we do, insert a hip and just toss them over as fast as I possibly can. That's what I'd do if the knife point was in my throat. If they were putting the blade against my throat, you know, I can't do that, right? I can't I can't slide that knife to the side. It's going to cut my throat. So I have to essentially pull it down, right? So I'm going to do like that that equivalent of a radius takedown where I throw my radius bone over the radius bone of his forearm super quick and just pull that down to my chest, Squeeze it to my chest, and now that knife is probably three three or four inches away from my throat. At that point, easy to knee the guy in the groin, doing a soda gary, do all, all kinds of things you can do from your training to take them down because you've, you've eliminated the threat of the knife. Uh, he's not going to be able to pull that out of, of that grip. So, you know, that's that's a couple of different type of, you know, actual Technical answers, which I know people that are listening to are always dying to hear about that. I would uh, that I would choose. But, you know, let's ratchet it back to the safety aspect. You have to make decisions very quickly on whether or not it's worth doing it um, at, at that moment. You know, are you truly threatened? You know, is it something that's you're about to have your life taken or is it something as simple as, you know, taking off your watch and throwing it four feet away and letting him run and grab it and run away?
0: So I guess there could be an ego thing involved in here, right? I mean, if we can just give them the wallet or give them the watch or iPad or phone or whatever it is that they're really looking for, even though we can do all these other things, then
1: it's a, it's a good day. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and again, you have to rate that threat. Oftentimes when somebody pulls out a, a knife or a gun— Uh, And it's a robbery situation. They end up shooting you or stabbing you anyway, even after you gave them the stuff. Um, So you really have to uh, you have to sort of really quickly assess how aggressive is this person? Are they scared shitless? And they're really just kind of holding that out there to give them an advantage over you. And all they're hoping in their brain is like, please just give me your wallet so I can run away. Or is this person like all over you? And, you know, not only are they going to take your stuff, but, you know, they're going to make sure you can't tell the tale. And you got to you got to judge that pretty quickly.
0: Oh, that's a little bit more dangerous. So we would know that just by how we well, know.
1: Well, just by the feeling. I mean, you, you know, I, so I, actually that's a really great question. That is a great question. I shouldn't I shouldn't blow by that one because if you have no experience with aggression, it's going to be very difficult for you to know what to do. And I think that's why when you're in a good jujitsu class with a good instructor, sometimes they're going to turn it on. They're going to make it really aggressive. You're going to get crushed. And I've always said that's maybe even more important than being the winner of martial art scenarios, right? It's almost it's almost more effective for your training to be the loser quite often, To to know what that feels like, to be crushed, to have somebody be overly dominantly aggressive on you so that you know what the difference between that is and somebody who's just like, you know, waving a knife at you, you like, you know, give me your watch, buddy, come on, and you know, and you can tell they're nervous and they're just, they they don't want anybody to see them. They don't want the cops to come. they just like, you know, I'm going to threaten you and I'm hoping you're going to just going to give me your stuff and not give me any trouble so I can get out of here. Like there's a total difference between that and being up in your face. And so that's how I would sort of rate that situation. Although I will have to say, if somebody pulls a gun out, I don't really care if they're aggressive or not aggressive. (laughs) I mean, that's a gun
0: talk a little bit more about the gun one. that's I'm um, really interested in that. I don't know if you've seen the Homeland Security has uh, put up a, a video you know, on their website. Uh, a disgruntled employee goes in and takes a handgun out and starts uh, picking off people um, at point blank range or brings in um, a semi-automatic weapon and um, starts uh, rapid fire taking people out. What are the steps to to do there, and and uh, how how close is the Homeland Security to to what we yeah. actually should be doing?
1: Well, I mean, I know the first thing that Homeland Security tells you to do is to be heavily armed and be prepared for anybody that's coming into your workplace, right? <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a different organization. <laughs> oh, okay, that that wasn't it. Okay. Um, Yeah. So, you know, it's very tough. There's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of workplaces that put in their company policies that you cannot be armed on the workplace. Um, You know, and I think even the state and federal law sort of bend to private organizations and their own policies on whether or not you can be armed or not armed uh, on premises. Um, so you, so, you, so sometimes you really don't have an option to be armed. You know, all, all you can do is just you know, hope for the best and, and that sort of thing. I think what gets people in trouble, not only in the workplace shooter or the movie theater shooter or even just being mugged, is the, the disbelief that it's actually happening. They, their brain does not exist in a combative kind of world on a daily basis. They don't really think about those type of things. Ninety nine point nine percent of people, you know, most of those people have never maybe even fired a weapon or or any of those type of things. So when those things happen, when the pop pop starts, you know, there there's almost this moment of disbelief like no, no, of course nobody's in here shooting, you know, in the the office building kind of thing, right? So that's one thing that gets people in trouble. And and they sort of hesitate, or they go look, or or some of these things that really, you know, gets them into trouble. Instead of taking the old military view of things, and that's putting, basically putting something bulletproof in between you and wherever that sound is coming from. Concealment and, and cover, I think cover is what you're going for, right? Concealment means they can't, see you but once they do find you they can shoot you and uh, and cover means like you're you're being covered by something that you cannot that cannot be penetrated by bullets or it's very difficult to be penetrated by bullets and and that's what I would say is the main thing you want to do right you want to move as far away from that sound as possible and you want to put something that you know, is, uh, bullet resistant or bulletproof between you and, and that person. Uh, um, that's, that's really the best that you can do. Uh, but you know, I'll escalate that situation and, you know, you, you know, whatever you tip over a metal desk or something and you're hiding behind the desk and, you know, that, that covers you from shots from a distance, but then the person wants to literally come and find you, right. They, they want to be, they, they're looking for you and that's where you have to, you know, you have to go all animal, um, I mean, this that at, at that point, that's life and death. Uh, you can do the, oh, no, it's my time, and just get shot. Or you can, you know, hope for the best and, you know, at least get shot while you were knocking the guy to the floor and biting a chunk out of his neck, you know, one or the other. Um, the second one sounds like a better obituary to me uh, <laughs> if, if that's going to happen. But yeah. again, 99% of the time, people that are attacking you in any way, armed or unarmed, are thinking that they set up the situation where they're dominant and you're gonna be semi-docile or fearful or run away and are not prepared to deal with what's coming back at them if you decide that, you know, you're gonna go back at them twice as hard as they're coming at you. I always advocate fighting back unless there is a situation where your fighting back is going to absolutely get somebody else hurt or killed, or you have the ability to escape or de-escalate. Other than that, fighting back is always the best, is always the best course. You know, there are specific techniques and methods that you can use in a movie theater or in mass transit or on an airplane or in a workplace to make yourself more safe or to defend yourself. But they're kind of hard to describe just in a podcast. You, You actually have to have training with somebody there, you know, showing you physically what to do if you're armed, if you're unarmed, if you're in a, a place with escape routes, ingress, egress, or not. I mean, you, you've got to work with you know some professional people to to help you through those situations. But the basic rules still apply. I mean, you got to cover. You got to you know you have to have something in front of you that's gonna resist bullets, and you've got to be able to either escape or attack. I mean, it doesn't it doesn't change whether or not you're in mass transit, a movie theater, or at a workplace. I mean, some somebody starts shooting, you, you don't have too many choices.
0: And that's very much in line with the, the video from Homeland Security and what they're advocating as well. I was just wondering if there was any advice or steps that you could outline which we could train for within the dojo or outside.
1: Sure, so one of the things I would advocate is, you know, do realistic scenario training. So have somebody who's got a semi- crappy car that they don't mind getting scraped up or whatever and put it in a parking lot and work your carjacking techniques like in a car, like for real. So that you can see the different nuances of a seat configuration or whether you have a headrest or a seat belt or the windows open or the windows closed or or whatever. You know, find a place maybe in somebody's playroom where it's not their like best, you know, living room furniture where you can have like a couch and a chair and an end table or know, maybe even somebody's little sports bar in their basement or whatever and, and, you know, work some of your situations from there. You know, how, how are you going to do it when you're sitting down? How are you going to do it when you're standing at a bar? How are you going to deal with those type of situations? Um, we were just working the other day. We took a couple of park benches, you know, just those real light wooden benches and we lined them up one behind the other. And we said, okay, this is a a train or this is a bus or you're in an airplane. And, where do you sit? You know, do you sit near the aisle or do you sit internally? Well the answer is you sit near the aisle. You can't do anything from the internal seat. You know, what happens if a person is coming towards you with a gun? What happens if somebody's walking away with away from you with a gun? How do you handle that, right? How do you how do you grip them? How do you isolate the weapon and bend the wrist and take it away and, and those type of things. So you need to actually put butts in seats and, you know, work on your techniques. The good news is the techniques that you learn in the dojo just work outside the dojo. It's just so you haven't practiced them in the actual environment you're going to be in, right? A kote gish or, a, a, you know, a gooseneck wrist bend or Cody Makitori on an arm type of position. Figure fours work. Your All your strikes work. You know, your leverage, your balance, all of that, all of that stuff. Everything that you do with your weapon takeaways, it, it all works in the natural situation. You just are in a different environment that you have to deal with. So, you know, I definitely advise instructors to go out there and maybe take their blue belts and above, right. And go out there and just say, Hey, today we're going to meet in somebody's playroom, their basement. we got some furniture down there. You know, um, we're going to go in, we're going to work on these, these type of things. I think that's, that's pretty key. You can also work on situations like you're walking down a path and somebody comes up behind you and, puts a gun in the back of your head and says, give me your wallet. Well, just because you're on a path doesn't change what you do in the dojo when somebody puts a gun on the back of your head, right? I mean, you're still going to do the same techniques, but you're, you're in a more natural situation where you're actually in movement and somebody comes up to you and, and does, does something like that. You know, you might want to go outside of the building where there's no mats and just have somebody shove you up against the wall and put a gun against the side of your head or put a knife in your belly and just, say, okay, so now I've got to do my techniques here, right? Ground's got gravel. I'm wearing kind of like a coat because it's winter. You know, What am I going to do? How am I going to use my techniques in this natural environment when this person's being really aggressive? That's the kind of training that I think you need to do to move your martial arts from the dojo into the real world.
0: Can we talk a little bit about the mentality of, of some of the attackers? And you've gone over it also um, with specific instances. When that's happening, like recently, the Pulse nightclub in Orlando, you're talking about um, actually going out and defending yourself or fighting back. These are for only the people that are in this situation. Or if you do have a chance to escape, should you decide to go back because it's your moral duty or, or are the odds that bad that you could
1: get killed no matter what? How should we approach that? Sure. So let me just tell you how I approach it. I want it to be an example. It may or may not be right for everyone, but it's what I do. It doesn't matter where I go. It can be I'm going to the diner with my parents or I'm going to the movies with Kay or going out with some black belt friends to a bar or whatever it is we're doing where we put ourselves into a public situation. When I go to a place, I survey it. I don't survey it with paranoia. I just survey it as habit. Here's how I... Came in. How am I going to go out? How how many other ways do I have out? Are there any other ways out? Right. There should be other there should be other exits. If I put myself into a situation where there's only one way in and out, I start looking at windows. Do windows open? Would I have to break something? I mean, what what, what would I do? How how would I get out of here? And it's not again. It's not through paranoia. It's just that we know these things happen in the world. They happen all the time. They happen everywhere. And you have to go into a situation. And say, how do I get in? How do I get out? That that's really the most important thing. There were people in that situation that you mentioned, and others. There's been many other situations where people have simply made uninformed, you know, I don't want to say they're bad choices, they're uninformed choices by saying, I'm going to go put myself in a closet, or I'm going to lock myself in a bathroom, or I'm to, you know, but essentially all they've done is they've just cornered themselves they put themselves in a place where they no longer had choices. They could no longer escape. And now it was just waiting for what was going to happen next. I hope the police come before the bad guy comes. Right. And, and I, I don't want to be in that situation. I mean that's I try to tell my students. I try to tell my my family my own children. You walk into a place, where are all the exits? How do you get out? whether it's a shooter or something catches on fire or, you know, whatever, how am I going to get out of here? That's the first and foremost, because you can't help anybody if you haven't helped yourself first. Right. I know you travel a bit for business. Do you ever sit down in your airplane seat and count how many rows in front of you or behind you are to the exit row? No. You need to start doing that. Okay. Right. Because yes. if a fire came on the airplane and it was pitch black and you couldn't see anything and you crawl out into that aisle with people stepping all over your back and people trying to grab their luggage and stuff. And you know, in your head that that exit row was four rows behind you. That's pretty easy to figure out crawling on your hands and knees. One, two, three, four, I'm the hell out. Right. But if you don't think about that, that means you just are assuming, I don't know, nothing's ever going to go wrong. And I hope it never does, but stuff does go wrong. So it's really easy to, to, do those things not be paranoid about it but simply knowing you know how to be safe as far as helping people in that situation and that would be very very difficult even for myself right if i happen to have been in a bar where a shooter shows up and i'm unarmed as most people would be because you know they're part part of having a concealed carry permit is that you don't have it in a alcohol establishment right I'm not saying that people aren't armed in a bar, but you're just not supposed to be. And so maybe you're not. And then, you know, somebody's coming in with either a semi-automatic that they know how to use or, or a fully automatic weapon. And you're lucky enough to have surveyed the scene and you're out before you get hit by any bullets. Very little that you can do at that point. You're you're unarmed against somebody that's just, you know, spraying bullets everywhere. You know, the best thing you can do is, you know, run to safety make sure everybody that you can scream at knows what's going on to call the police, to call the ambulances, you know, immediately call or text your loved ones to let them know that you're okay. That that's kind of all that you can do again. You know, it's not as cool as being like Jack Reacher and running back in and suddenly kicking everybody's ass, even though there are bullets everywhere, but that's kind of the reality of it. If you happen to be the person standing by the door and a guy walks in with a AK in his hand and he, and he's, you know, six inches away from you or a foot away from you and he starts firing, yeah, use everything you got to take that guy down because I think you could probably pretty easily do it. But if you're not in that type of situation, then there's really nothing you can do other than save yourself, alert everybody, and tell your family you're safe.
0: What if you're in there in an enclosed space and had you made a a bad decision or just followed the crowd into um, a closed area or uh, the bullets start flying, then what can or should you do if, if there is no obvious way to escape? Is is that the point where you decide for yourself, you know what, there's 50-50 chance or even less chance that I'm going to make it out of here alive, so why not go ahead and, and try to go all uh, zombie on this guy?
1: <laughs> you know, I think that I'm only going to speak for myself. The two things that I would do if that happened, right? For some reason, I knew where the escape routes were, but the crowd just massed and shoved me into, you know... Uh, you know, a bathroom or, or, you know, something, a closet or something I had, I really couldn't, I really couldn't stop it from happening. I would do two things. First, I would just follow the rule that I talked about before. I would try to make sure I had some kind of cover. I would try to get something that was bullet resistant or bulletproof in between myself and the possible, you know, shooter. I don't know what that would be. Um, it would depend on where I was, but I mean, you know, I'm just going to look for something that I can, you know, cover my body with, and then, you know, you've got to make that choice. And I, I love the way you describe that, too. I mean, you know, uh, it's a 50-50 chance, right? If I sit in this room, the guy's going to come in and shoot me. If I leave this room, the guy's going to, you know, probably shoot at me, too. It's a very, very hard decision, one that I have not been in. So, you know, it's hard to say what someone could do. But I, I do like having an option. I, I, just, I just feel like having the option is better than having no option. You know, I think myself personally, I would probably try to get out of that room unless there were bullets literally coming through the door of the bathroom or the wall at that point so that I knew that person was pointing his weapon directly where I was. Uh, If that wasn't happening, I would probably try to uh, try to escape in some way. I I think at least I would have some chance having, you know, observed where the exits are and where my options are when I first came into the place that i could you know i could potentially uh get there can't guarantee what's going to happen but i can almost guarantee what's going to happen if you do nothing if you sit around and you wait and this person's just walking along plugging one person at the other slowly and methodically and he's going to clear all those rooms of live people well you know if you sit there you're going to be one of those victims thank you sean that's uh yeah it's a pretty heavy subject i mean you know the world is is uh is a little crazy and I'm not going to maybe pick on the whole world. And the United States is pretty crazy. And there's a few other crazy places in the world that are that are pretty dangerous. So we have to deal with the reality of it, even though it's, you know, it's a, a downer. I wish the world was a much more loving and peaceful place. But there's there's people out there that are just simply bad people or have mental illness. And you have to deal with it. And you have to be ready. And as your kids grow older, you have to make them ready. That's your job. And so, you know, we have to we have to talk about these things and we have to think about these things, you know, simply because, you know, we're talking about them now, Sri, where people listen to this podcast and maybe it'll put ideas in their mind. You know, maybe they'll look for ingress and egress routes. You know, maybe they'll look for the exit rows on the airplane. Maybe they'll think about, man, I I need to put something in between me and a shooter. Uh, maybe I need to understand when things seem to be escalating, and maybe I just shouldn't be here anymore. You know, maybe I need to make a decision ahead of time whether or not I'm going to fight or I'm going to run, so I don't have to make that decision at that moment, right? So, you know, if it helps in any way, people listening to this podcast, I mean, that's that's really what we're after here.
0: I Wanted to focus back to one of the examples you gave: if uh, if you're by the door and and somebody walks, and I actually was watching this YouTube video of a knife stabbing and there's this guy standing in the subway right by the door with a knife held kind of with the blade back uh, against his arm and he's just standing there kind of behind his back it's it's in plain sight at least i don't know eight to ten people walked by looked down saw the knife most of them just got away from there as fast as possible others just kind of stood gave some distance just stared at him like okay what's he going to do next what are your thoughts about about what, that?
1: What 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 did he do next?
0: Oh, um he, he, when doors close he stabbed somebody. <laughs>
1: okay. Uh so I'm totally with the people that were like, "Hey, I'm out of here. I can make the next train." I think that was a great choice. I think some of the people that stare are, are in one of two camps. They're in the I, I can't believe something crazy like this is happening. Um, you know, is this guy just a nutcase? You know, and it's, it's kind of that disbelief view. And then there's probably a couple there that like, you know, if this guy even moves, I'm going to I'm going to totally jump him. But, you know, in the reality of it is he steps onto uh, what was it, a subway train?
0: Yeah, it was a subway.
1: Yeah, he steps onto a subway, and then he either, you know, it's hard to tell from the video if if he just starts randomly stabbing somebody or if there was somebody in particular that he he was after. But you know, that's the type of situation where the very first level of the escalation of self defense should have been the answer, right? I see this guy, he's got a knife. We're standing in a subway. That's not what people do in a subway. I'm I'm moving out. I'm I'm gonna get the next train. You know that that is the thing to do you know, unless the person attacks you directly and then you use your your jujitsu and your self-defense training. But, you know, you can make decisions way before that and, and get yourself, you know, completely out of the way. Uh, speaking of that, I've, you know, spent years and years doing this, as you know. Um, I've probably researched and studied every video that I could find of actual, you know, knife stabbings, fights, altercations, muggings, people pulling pistols, shootings, you know, just to see what, what really, really happens. And, you know, speaking of the knife part in particular, you know, 99% of the things that I saw that were at least captured on video were either a normal, a normal grip on the knife and stabbing towards the person's, you know, torso or the overhead knife, you know, the ice pick uh, version of the attack. But even in that situation, it was far more just the, you know, regular grip on a knife, stabbing people in the torso, typically grabbing them by the shirt, the jacket, the hair, something to grab onto them where they can't really get away from you. And just, you know, stab, 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 multiple, multiple stabs. You know that's probably the situation you're going to run into more often than not. Although the other attacks could, you know, could happen. Um, and again, it just comes down to you got to you have to grab onto that arm to that wrist. Right? I don't care if you have two hands on the wrist, a hand on the wrist and the forearm, wrist and the elbow, whatever. You have to control that arm. Um and that should be the first thing that you go for. It's just, you know, just go for that. Uh maybe you even get poked once before you're able to grab onto that, you know, grab onto that arm, but if you're trained, of course, you're going to do that thing where you sort of hop your torso back and away to give yourself some extra space while you're grabbing the arm, but but either way, you got to get a hold of that knife stabbing arm and then after that now you can do things now you can strike, throw, break, twist, you know, all, all of those other things but if there's an arm flailing around out there with a knife in it, you know, you're going to get cut and stabbed. So, you know, again, that, that's what kind of moves along that escalation of self-defense. If you saw a guy with a knife, well, you should be gone by the time anything bad happens. And and number 2, if like you you're getting stabbed, you got to control that arm first and foremost. And then I suggest things like uh, Gakute or Shihonagi or Urikiyashi or um, Kodimakitori or Ipan I mean, there's a list is a mile along of the things you can do once, you, once you've grabbed on. And you've been through that exercise too. It's, it's one of the best exercises you can do for knife defense in the dojo. You know, once you're past yellow belt, like once you're a blue belt, just have a guy put a knife in his hand. You you know, not even stabbing you, just put it in his hand, just grab onto his wrist, get a good tight grip of his wrist, and then just let him go wild and try to stab you. And feel that aggression and hold onto that arm and figure out all the various techniques that you know and how they all work together depending on his motion. Does he push? Does he pull? Does he lift? Does he go downwards? Um, that'll give you a great idea of what it's going to feel like when you, you know, you're holding on to somebody that's flailing with a knife.
0: Uh, how often should we be practicing and these scenario-based attacks outside of the dojo?
1: I would say it would increase the higher your level gut. So, you know, I I think we come up with enough scenarios for white and yellow belts in the dojo, and and they're learning all of their techniques, and that's that's probably fine. Although, you know, if you're a yellow belt, you've probably gone through at least one holiday bash, which is a realistic and eye-opening situation to start with. Um, but by the time you're a blue belt, you know, maybe doing this once, uh, you know, once every couple months would be good. Brown belts and black belts, I would say, you know, doing it, um, at least once a month would be a really good idea. You know, you just, just come up with the scenarios. I think all of our instructors are aggressive enough to come up with some good attack scenarios. Uh, but that, that being said too, you know, if you're an instructor out there and you, and you, don't know how, what techniques to use from a carjacking or being stuck, you know, a stick up at an ATM or somebody, you know, grabbing your, your wallet out of your pocket, even if they're unarmed or a hostage situation or, you know, any of that type of stuff, you know, what happens if you have a home invasion, if you haven't been trained in that, you need to seek out somebody that really knows what they're talking about and and get that training. And even if it's not from somebody, you know, at Kobukai Jiu Jitsu, you know, the question or even if it is somebody from Kobukai Jiu Jitsu, the question you need to ask yourself when somebody is uh, training in these techniques is, is it simple? Is it easy to remember? Is it easy to execute? Is it effective? Right. Those are the things that are really going to be the hallmarks for good techniques. You know, if it involves some kind of athletic spin or some flying kick or, A forward roll, or you know, any of this kind of crazy stuff that maybe you can only pull up, pull off until the age thirty kind of stuff. Then it's not the techniques aren't worth it. Nobody that's really an operator out there in the world, real world, you know, a Navy SEAL or uh, you know a SWAT team guy, none of these guys do fancy anything. It's got to be super quick, super effective, really easy to learn, easy to remember, so it can be done immediately. And and those are the realistic techniques you're going to want to do, uh, you know, in those those type of scenarios outside the dojo.
0: And lastly, Sheehan, could you talk about leadership, too, because of what you said before, where 99.9% of the population doesn't ever think about these things, and they don't wish it would ever happen to them anyway. It's almost as if when these instances occur, if people are just kind of uh, in a different mindset that is not conducive to their own survival, let alone others, do we kind of help others out in terms of telling them what to do or what not to do?
1: Yeah, I definitely think we have the responsibility to do that. I mean, as you know, there aren't that many people, there aren't that many adults uh, or teenagers or anything that are in a self-defense class that's really focused on this kind of stuff. I mean, there's plenty of people doing martial arts, but um, not too many people that are focused on real-life scenario training, um, stuff that really happens by people that are trained specifically in in the, those fields. Um, so... You know, and they're not going to, right? Uh, they're not going to go and get that training. Unfortunately, that's that's what happens. So obviously trying to help them to join a school um, would be great. That would be great. If not, you know, maybe as a, a martial art leader putting on a just a seminar, just a training seminar with some of the, the real basics of personal safety and personal protection, uh, I think would be, you know, really go a long way. It's not about martial art technique. It's about maybe a lot of the stuff that we were talking about. Today, you know, understanding your environment, the escalation of self-defense, ingress and egress, you know, concealment and cover, all of these things that anybody can learn about and doesn't have to be a black belt or, or even be training in a school. So for sure, we could set up those type of situations. And then just for our friends and loved ones and coworkers or whatever, you know, exchanging that knowledge in a way that, number one, you know, is going to help them if they can remember it. Uh, number two, you know, doing it in a fun way, not seeming like some kind of self-defense dork, um, you know, three, putting it into a conversation that they were talking about that anyway, uh, you know, where they may have mentioned some fear of, of, you know, their, whatever, a plane getting hijacked or, you know, gee, I just saw this thing where another movie, you know, theater got shot up. I don't even know what I do in that situation where you can just say, geez, you know, I mean, I've studied this quite a bit and I've learned this from some of my instructors and, you know, here's some of the things that they told me that anybody could do. You know, I think that is passing along knowledge that's going to be incredibly helpful for for everybody to protect themselves and, and to protect our loved ones. Because at the end of the day, self-defense is way, way more than just the techniques that we learn, the belts and the certificates that we get and all that stuff. It's it's much more about, you know, personal safety and personal protection. Um, that's going to that's going to really get you through the day. Uh, I always go back to you know, a good friend and. A past student of mine, uh, Brian Nicholson, who, you know, people who are part of Kobukai know, uh, you know, is a very, very highly trained both in martial arts and in uh, the military and private security, Um, you know, knows every weapon in the world, has been an instructor in every weapon in the world. Uh, He has said multiple, multiple times that he feels that he does his job best. He is at his top game when he can go in and get out and nobody even knew he was there. He didn't talk about shooting anybody. He's not talking about getting in a fight. He's not talking about his cool techniques. He's not talking about his cool weapons. He's basically saying, if I don't have to do anything, then I've done my job. I've protected myself and I've protected the person I'm supposed to protect by doing all of the non-martial art techniques, about doing all the awareness stuff, about doing ingress and egress, about Understanding people, understanding when people are on the edge, when things are about to escalate, like all of that non-martial art stuff from a person who's probably the most highly trained person that I know. So that is the story. That—that That is what is really important. You have to know how to protect yourself and others way before you have to worry about any kind of martial art technique that you're going to pull off. So, yeah, should we be telling people about this? 100%.
0: Thank you so much, Shihan. This is the reason I do Kobukai Jiu-Jitsu, because I'm not after any kind of trophy. I think there is no better prize than saving my own life and surviving and saving the life of my family or, or surviving could ever offer me.
1: Absolutely. And, you know, obviously we're part of Kobukai Jiu-Jitsu and there's lots of students that belong to us and we talk about it all the time, but there are many, many groups out there. If you do a little bit of search or even if you want to reach out to some of the instructors at Kobukai Jiu- jiu-jitsu we can head you in that direction that do scenario-based training some of it is martial art focused. some of it some of it isn't Um, but they're all they're all good uh, trainers and they can help different people in different ways and uh, um, you you have to have the motivation to go out and find this for yourself it has to be important enough to you Um, you know you can save yourself and your family without training for 10 years you know, you can go out to a couple of seminars, you can go to a couple of things where you learn about safety and personal safety and awareness and personal protection. And it'll help you quite a bit before you ever have to get into learning how to physically, you know, defend yourself against another person. Although I would recommend that for everyone because you, you really never know uh, what's going to happen out in this crazy world. All right. That's great, Sham. Yeah, thank you uh, for talking about this. One of, uh, one of the subjects that pumps me up quite a bit, scenario-based training is very, very important for any martial artist to do. So go out there, find a car, find a couch, find a, a wall, find an old ATM machine, get your instructor, and, and, and train in some realistic environments.